hello. This is Reality of Reality, and I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. Today on the podcast, I'm going out of the box a little, but whether you're in this industry or not, I have a feeling you'll find this interview as fascinating as I do. Daryl Miller, he is a very well-known and respected entertainment attorney here in Los Angeles. He runs the entertainment practice of Fox Rothschild. Daryl's got a lot of famous clients in reality. Think NeNe Leakes, Damon John, Inscripted. He represents Blair Underwood, Angela Bassett, film, music. Ludacris is one of his big clients. You name it. Daryl's approach is to really look at the person that he's representing, and that's why I think his clients love him so much. And we talk all about this and his book, The 16th Minute of Fame, which I urge you to go out and get. It's part instructional, part memoir, and many parts inspirational, like Daryl himself. So, Daryl Miller, I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you for having me. This is kind of a unique podcast because I've had on sort of the producers and the executives and the kind of, you know, people that make the donuts, so to speak. So to have on Someone like you is very special, but it's something that I really wanted to do just in general to have an entertainment attorney. And then I thought, oh, my God, Daryl's perfect. And I always start by giving just a little bit of background on how I know my guests. We met through Lori Landu, who is your partner on the East Coast um, with Fox Rothschild. And uh, she's like, you have to meet Daryl. You have to meet Daryl. It was probably like five years ago. Yes. And I immediately I I wrote this down in my notes. I said, Daryl is a connector. Right. I mean, you're more than you're way more than an attorney. Well, I definitely have always had the belief that if I'm the only one succeeding with my like mind, I lose. So I need a community. And I've often worked really hard to build and connect with good people and connect good people uh, and what I call planting the seeds and hoping that they'll come back. So, yes, I've been always a connector. Connecting the dots is a, is a mission of life. I love that. And I feel like you um, that's part of making people happy too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I feel I have a a funny theory. I often tell people no matter what you do, no matter where you go, no matter how still you are, life finds you. So if you had a choice, you should choose to put out positive energy. You should choose to be excited because bad shit finds you. You know, tough things come to you. Problems will find you. You cannot sit still without having things approach you. So the negative stuff, life forces will deal with that. So we should spend our proactive energy on all the positive. That's a great philosophy, especially coming from a lawyer. (laughs) Well, no, because, I mean, in general, especially in entertainment, I mean, you're dealing with fires and bullshit. I'm a crisis manager. Right. Yeah. So how do you stay so positive? Well, again, if you – I think of it as as a person who's in a crisis. You don't want to be dealing with people who are also – experiencing that same level of crisis. You know, you really want to come to someone who you think in the middle of the storm can at least figure out, you know, there's an opening. If we can put this plan together, we might get through that opening and out of this crisis. So I've actively trained myself and I train my young lawyers to basically say, you have to be the opposite of the situation or you're not really helping the situation because if everybody's freaking out, nobody's got a level enough head or a clear enough vision to get you out of the problem. So what I'm gathering, so you've written this incredible book called The 16th Minute of Fame, which we're going to get into big time because, as I was saying to you before we started rolling here, I love this book because I think it applies to everybody and not just people in entertainment, which is sort of how I thought it was going to be because when you hear fame, you hear famous and you hear celebrity and it's really a great, I mean, I, I honestly, I, I will plug it hard because, first of all, it's very short, my favorite kind of books, and uh, I'm really instructive. But what I, uh, but what was interesting is you have a lot of uh, very famous people giving you blurbs. Uh, you've got Damon Johns and Ludacris and Nene Leakes and Angela Bassett. I mean, you have a lot of famous clients. Got to put it out there. You got to. And But one of them was a, an agent who said that Daryl is more than an attorney. He's a consigliere. Consigliere. That's that. Which I love that, right? Yeah. I knew I pronounced it wrong. So <laughs> what what is it about? I mean, because you are, you sort of are more than an, a lawyer. I mean, I feel like if your clients talk about you, they probably don't even say my lawyer. Like, how do you think of yourself? It started with me trying to figure out and asking myself a question. How am I different than other lawyers, right? And if I'm not different, why would people actually come to me? And most people don't ask themselves enough, right? If there's a thousand good people, a thousand good schools, and everybody's got great credentials, and many had more connections than me, what makes me different? And uh, that question about what was my differentiator really challenged me to examine myself. And I said, look, everyone can do a great contract. 
and Hollywood's full of good deals and contracts and money and credit. But how many people do you really know spend the time who really focus on that element of advice, guidance, and counsel? Who really does that, right? You think of agents, or my agent told me to do this, my manager told me to do this. But when it comes to lawyers, always like, my lawyer got me the credit, my lawyer got me the money. And for me, I really am invested in the careers, invested in the lives of people who entrust me with their you know, legal aspects. And uh, I try to find a way to give advice, guidance, and counsel real significance in my representation. And so I often thought, and I jokingly many years ago started thinking about the Godfather movie. And if you really think about that movie, the consigliere was always the person the family consulted for everything. And if you really think about the purpose of that, it was no matter how far you go, no matter who you are, to really have someone who had a bird's eye view of all your matters and could help you kind of guide, advise, and kind of significantly think through those matters before you made the deal was an amazing, amazing component in anyone's life and I think in anyone's business. And so that became my differentiator. I became the person who says, I don't, yeah, I can do a deal all day long. Everyone could do a deal. But would you rather have someone who really understand or understood where you were trying to go and can kind of navigate and think about things before you thought about things because you were already on a bigger mission than just that deal? Yeah, I think that's and you, I think you said it perfectly in your book. It's like you care about the person, not the deal. And if you start from that place. You ask that question. Yeah. I tell people, all, it's literally ask that question. Are you more invested in the deal or are you more invested in my career? And you can also get answers to that question without, in many cases, asking it if they're not asking questions beyond the deal. Start with who, you know, what, what are you most concerned about? The deal, you know, kind of, or the career. And... Whether they answer it honestly or not, you will get a sense of if they're thinking about how can this be used to do more things for you? How can your, you know, what's your next choice? Where do you want to go, right? Are you really looking to make this opportunity or these people long-term relationships? Is this a stepping stone to the next thing? But if you're really not focused, I think, on the career and on a series of opportunities that lead to a body of work, you know, you're really thinking about, okay, I'll get you this much money. I'll get my percentage. I'll get you this kind of credit. And I'll tell your agent, see you later. You'll never talk to me again. Right. It's sort of a very narrow approach, which, like you said, is dime a dozen. A lot of how, do you, how do you compete against that, right? Then it's just about you better use this guy because he's my guy. Yeah, totally. And one of the things you said, which, you know, there's, there's a, a lot of good takeaway, but sort of the highlight I think I came away with was the seven streams of income. And which, like was an incredible piece of advice and also gave me massive anxiety. <laughs> Absolutely. And it was intended to do that because, I, you know, I, uh, the other thing I looked at was why do so many people not succeed after getting more riches than they ever, ever dreamt about, right? In sports and entertainment, you can be living $9,000 year to year and all of a sudden making $3 million, you know, and ballplayer can go from, you know, college to making $125 million. How do you not, put that together and figure out a bigger, bigger plan. And it's because many of us are not thinking about that as one stream of revenue, right? And how can I take that one stream of revenue if I get to a certain place and leverage it into more? And then what's the significance of more? I did the research and found out that the average wealthy person in America has seven streams of income flowing into their empire. Their job was only one. They had stock. They had real estate. And they had, on an average, three to four businesses that were generating income. So when they got fired from their job, they're like, so what? I'll take a sabbatical. I'll see you in six months. You right, know? Right. When the stock market crashed, they were like, oh, they were not jumping in the street going crazy. <laughs> they go, well, it'll come back. I'll buy some more stock. You right. know? When the real estate market crashed, they were not devastated. And I started wondering, how are these people who are really the faceless wealth not being devastated when I'm freaking out? You know, I'm like thinking 26 weeks of unemployment, and then I'm <laughs> right. back. In. Yeah, mean, yeah. And it really became apparent to me that wealthy people, particularly wealthy or more training about generational wealth, are not focused on one thing. But Americans' philosophy and so for society has always been go to school, get a job. <laughs> go to school, get a job. And I think that did work for many, many years as America was formed, as people were, you know, able to go to school and get a factory job and live that job and have a retirement. Their son's getting in union. and you can get, That was America in the Industrial Revolution. But in the digital age, in the 21st century, those practices no longer apply. Right. There's no corporate loyalty. You can't even no. think. How many times would you be laughed at if you said, I'm going to work here and get a golden watch after 20 years and then retire? Yeah. And, and, and well, the other thing that's nice about this is that 
there are more opportunity. I mean, given the proliferation of technology and everything, I mean, it's actually a good time to be seeking out these seven streams, right? Because there's just more opportunity, like at least in entertainment, because that's where, you know, our POV is. Mm. Um, you know, and, and you're saying like, it shouldn't deviate so far from you your know, core business. You, right. So so give an example of kind so of. So here's an example. Just know. a really basic example. We're in a studio. You're running a podcast. There's one thing to say, okay, I'm going to be a host and have a popular podcast and I'll draw revenue from the business that I can create. But wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if you own the building? Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if you created the mics that we spoke on that generated revenue and not just your podcast, all the podcasts? Wouldn't it be wonderful to get your own real estate portfolio, your own stock portfolio? Wouldn't it be interesting to pay and invest in other companies around your business that just gave you a little bit of revenue? And over time, that little bit of revenue helped you sustain your lifestyle. The point is there are businesses that are literally within our circle of opportunities that we're not even thinking about. And if you thought about them when you had the revenue to invest in them, it's just a different mindset. The whole point of my book – was not I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not trying to tell you how to spend your money. None of that. It really is trying to change the mindset of one revenue stream is enough. Yeah, and it does that. And, and so this is a very sort of selfish question, but because this podcast is reality of reality, and I mostly talk to people in Unscripted, would you consider other revenue streams for people in Unscripted to be digital, to be scripted, to be film, or is that too literal? Absolutely. No, that is exactly right. That's exactly right. Right. And in Unscripted, why couldn't it be production? Why couldn't it be, you know, ownership? I love the story how Merv Griffin, most of his money, everyone thinks, oh my God, the Merv Griffin show. What, you know, most of his money came from writing theme songs. Interesting. And setting up other collateral businesses that he ultimately was made way more money in publishing than many people ever knew. Um, It really is an easy thing if you start to think about it and if your challenge is it's not enough to do this deal and make my money because this only helps me begin to fill out my dream and my dream is not complete until I have at least seven. But when you look at successful big time people, many of them can have 40, 50, 60, 100 businesses all coming into their empire. Mm-hmm. But you still have Americans in the 21st century with a 20th century plan of going to school, getting a job. Yeah, I'm thinking about someone like a Jessica Simpson who started as a pop singer, then kind of became a reality star and sort of quietly started this clothing line that became an empire. And that's how Jessica Simpson is that. I mean, that's her primary that's revenue her, stream. But that's now. the main revenue stream. Right. And you can imagine there's other things that money were probably put into. Yeah. I've got a couple of clients that own 400 apartment buildings. Wow. I've got a couple of clients that own six or seven homes. I've got a couple of clients that have great stock portfolios. I've got a couple of clients that you would not believe it invested in few businesses. But that's what you need to do. And I and offer, here's the other analogy, stock. Yeah. Right? You go to your stockbroker and you say, I want to put you know $5,000 in the stock. They rarely put that entire $5,000 in one stock. Right, right. They diversify it. Yeah, good point. We diversify everything to protect against the downturn, but we don't diversify our own livelihood, the core means for which we generate revenue. We put it all bet on black. (laughs) (laughs) We don't think in terms of how really that is no longer applicable. There's no longer corporate loyalty the way our grandparents enjoyed it, right? Yeah. right where companies, there's this famous story about these guys who built empires who said, before I change this business, you know, before I might get out rid of a division, but we're going to retrain all these people to do something else. Today, you are only as good as the last balance sheet. It's true. So let's take a case study, if you're okay with it, of sure. someone, one of your clients who I think we're allowed to say is Nene Leakes. <laughs> so, of course, so she's started as a reality star on Housewives of Atlanta. She's an interesting case study to me, right? Because she has really been able to build those branches in a big way. And I'm assuming that you helped steer her in those directions. So talk a little bit about like what – because Housewives has a, has an expiration date, right? Absolutely. So so what do, what do you think about when you think about someone like her who's clearly sort of a breakout star on Housewives? How do you maximize Nene's seven streams? Well, Nini can be my poster kid for the 16th <laughs> minute of fame. Um, we met in the second year of her uh, being on that show. Okay. And the first year was kind of early on in the franchise. Uh, I think Orange County was still the big franchise of the Housewives. Atlanta was this little upstart thing. And in the second year, I met Nini and we started working and planning it out. But today, my tagline for Nini has been from Bravo. To Broadway. She has actually been a wonderful prototype for how I advocate 
a little opportunity can be turned into a significant career if you're conscious enough, right? So we went from Bravo significantly renegotiating her position as her stardom rose. We went from Bravo to at the same time, I think in the fifth season, doing a scripted show. Right. On NBC. Yeah. Was it, was it, a it was a situation comedy that yeah. she did at the same time. She was the first reality star to ever at the same time simultaneously be on a scripted TV show and an unscripted show. So that's a second check. And then was that before you go on? Was that something that she said, Daryl, I've always wanted to be an actress, you know, not just or did you say, hey, you're funny. You could do this. It wasn't me. It wasn't her. It was a showrunner who fell in love with her on The Real Housewives of Atlanta and said, I just got to have I got to find a way to be in business with you. I got to find a way to be in business with you and she thought about it and said I'd love to try and that showrunner created an opportunity I had to negotiate the deal she had to be interested and we put it all together wow. based on a fan who was watching the unscripted show God bless so from that show she was inspired and we were on fire I'll never forget I think six years into the housewives we got an offer to be the first celebrity ever to host a Cirque du Soleil franchise. It was the 10th year anniversary of Zumanity in Las Vegas. And they said, we've never done this before. We're going to do a special run of performances. And we'd like you to come in, do a short rehearsal, and be the MC for this special 10th year anniversary anniversary of Zumanity. Wow. And again, I, of course, put an incredible deal in place. And <laughs> we did it. But here, for the first time ever... Cirque du Soleil in Vegas. This little Nini Leaks from Housewives Atlanta goes there. After that, we get an opportunity because another fan from some producer somewhere on Broadway says, we have this vision. We'd love for you to come and consider being on Broadway in Cinderella. And, you know, we looked at it. We talked about it. And you know where I'm thinking. Seven streams of revenue. How can we do it? We're now going to open Broadway. I was like, no brainer. Uh, and we negotiated and made a deal. And she made a theatrical Broadway de- debut on the marquee as starring in Cinderella, Nene Leakes. Um, and that just went on and on and on. Now she did. we did a HSN, Home Shopping Network clothing line. We've got online businesses. We've got you know, merchandising businesses. We've got a second run on Broadway in Chicago. Uh, she's, I think she's right now on three or four networks from To Tell the Truth on ABC. You know, it's been an unbelievable run. And you better believe every principle that I talked about in my book Everything that I believe you must do with the little bit of opportunity you're given, she has been doing to the highest degree. And I've been incredibly proud and of her and, and just being on the team. So that's really interesting also because I wonder with someone like Nini, I mean, she clearly, you know, had the goods in terms of the personality and the look. And, you know, she's special in that way. But those people also work really hard, right? So this doesn't just these opportunities come and you say yes, but, right, it's not so easy, Nobody who succeeds falls upward, you know, in this kind of business because there's a lot of stuff that's required of you. And particularly if you are kind of thrown in the position, we've seen people who've been given great opportunities who just can't even handle the great opportunity. She's been hustling and working really, really hard to try to prove herself in each of those opportunities. And um, and it's been wonderful watching her learn different things and learn different ways of work. And it's been wonderful watching her get terrified, you know, when her first live theater thing, Zumanity, was like, oh, my God, they're not going to cut and take and edit together yeah. and make me look good. This is like curtain yeah. up, people watching. Yeah. I got to do it. And then she did it after that first night. I'll never forget. And she's like, I think I can get the hang of this. But it's a process. So she worked really hard. She continues to work really hard. And I believe truly successful people have to work hard. There's no longer an environment where, you know, just kind of showing up is enough. Hardly, yeah. I mean, what and someone like her, or or specifically her, what's the end game then? So she's got all this stuff going on. Like, does she have one goal yet to— to be conquered, or is it just sort of do it all till she gets tired of it? I can't really tell, you know, <laughs> what her total end game is, but I'll tell you, I don't. I, I think any everyone's in game. If I gave it kind yeah. of more of an abstract position, Please. including Nini, should be to build a body of work that's sustainable, to build a series of income streams that are, you know, are reliable, and that at a certain point you get to a place where you start making choices as opposed to having choices made for you. And that's ultimately what we all want. But again, we're not necessarily understanding how to make a plan to get there. We think one TV show will last forever. Well, if you really thought about it, most television shows have less than an 11% chance of succeeding from concept to series. Oh, right? that's depressing. We think one movie is going to make us, you know, make us, you know, um, ultimately the most successful person in the world, right? 
today, well, let's put it this way. Star Wars, when it first came out, the original Star Wars, you can, you can go in the spring or you can go in the winter. It was still running at the same theater. Wow. Today, movies are Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and they're marketing the next one on Monday. Yeah, right? it's true. So you can't do it. You know, the record business that we knew, we can live on a record, 50 million sales, whatever, doesn't even exist. So the idea that one opportunity can sustain you even like it did yesterday doesn't really exist. And so I really feel that's an urgency to challenge people to change your mentality. You cannot live today playing the game like we played it yesterday. Right. You have to think differently. And so, the, you know, a couple of themes in my book and a couple of things that I live by. The book is really a ref- it was a small nugget reflection that I wanted to kind of put out there in a way to help people. But the principles I live by now are think differently and embrace change. Think differently and embrace change because you've got to be prepared to kind of move and shake as this digital revolution changes the paradigm of what everybody does. Pivot, pivot, pivot. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's what you did in your career. So, I mean, that's what's so interesting about you is that not the typical uh, trajectory of an attorney. You started out as a performer, essentially. I mean, you thought, you know, in high school, you went to a performing arts school in Ohio. And and one of the things I love in your book, when you talk about your upbringing, which I want you to talk about, because it's, I think, really interesting and kind of made you who you are, is um, that 80% of success is access. And I agree with that 100%, 100% because, you know, just being in LA now, because I'm, I'm fairly new to LA, it's like a whole new world, you know, and, and it's so true that if you're in the middle of nowhere, but you have this school in Ohio that, you know, all these sort of actors have come through and you have access to that, that already gives you a leg up on everyone else in Ohio. Access is the holy grail, but you better be prepared when you get it, right? And so it's, uh, you know, access coupled with the preparation, um, um, access really representing the opportunity and the preparation, you know, kind of being at a crossroad with access means you succeed. And we also know a lot of people who've gotten that access who are not prepared and they got it because they fell into it, or that's when someone can't open the door just because they like you or your friends or you're related, and you don't succeed. Um, But for those who are in the Midwest, like myself, who've dreamed about Hollywood and thought about how can I make a difference, how can I get in if I'm not born there, haven't gone to school there, I don't have any friends right now there, it really was about focusing on how do I build access, how do I leverage and build networks and relationships and people that begin to allow me to form a community. Right, but the original plan was not what it is now. I mean, it was you thought you were going to Broadway, right? I was, I was on my way and inspired. And to this day, my truest, most honest love of the arts is Broadway and, and live theater. Yeah, wow. That's amazing. Do you ever regret that, that you didn't end up on stage? For, not for, for one, one second, because if, if I'd lived the life of an artist and I succeeded and left my home. As a successful artist, I joined the union as a sophomore in college. I did 29 shows at the Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera. I've traveled the world from Poland to Russia to India to Sri Lanka and Egypt performing. Yeah, and, and Princess and, and the Pea. <laughs> that was unbelievable to me. What part were you? Uh, I played the court gesture. I, oh was, uh, I did a couple of songs and had one of the principal roles. And um, we. it was a life-changing, absolutely experience. So I, I succeeded in the arts again, beyond my wildest dreams. And it was at the height of that career when I realized, oh my goodness, the blessings are so great. I don't want them to stop. How can I leverage it into more? Now, when I thought about law school, it wasn't because I was like, I can't sing and I want to go do somewhere and make money. Right, right. It was not. It was like, <laughs> I want, I literally first thought about law school as a means to make money in order to go back and produce shows around the world for the rest of my life. Wow. That was my initial. But how did you even know that? Like your background, I mean, you were raised by a single mom, uh-huh. basically. I'm a blue collar kid who yeah. should be on a factory line yeah. at Ford. <laughs> like, what, where did you come from? Again, I think it was blessings. I think I am. A, I am a freak of nature. <laughs> totally. I, I really, I really, really, really believe. You know, it, it, it is a form of a blessing. And you know, I'm I'm not the stereotypical you know African American kid who blamed society and the world for problems. And I'm not the, Af- the typical kid who, you know, won some big scholarship and was, you know, blessed and pushed along with all these mentors. I really worked hard and um, kind of explored things, allowed my mind to play out on its curiosity. And um, 
I use the arts to take me beyond my wildest dreams. Yeah, and what I also thought was interesting is interesting is that you know you're not a student. You you describe yourself as not a student per se. Didn't mm-hmm. really love school, but worked hard because you knew that that was going to get you from point A to point B. I hated school so much, (laughs) I never wanted them to ask me to do it a second time. So I got A's just to make sure you you clearly understood I passed it. Yeah, (laughs) and not only that, you applied all these law schools and... Thinking I could not get in. Right. I literally got into nine of the 12. Nine of the 12, but then George... George, I mean, tell that story. That's amazing. Again, again, a kid who's been traveling around the world (laughs) with a high school degree in arts, who come from the College Conservatory of Music with a BFA... You know, um, it was unbelievable, uh, even for myself, to believe that I could do something else. Because, again, we are, as society, conditioned to believe if this is your path, stay on it. Don't change. We're all risk adverse. We're all told you didn't go to school for economics or political science. What makes you think you could be a lawyer? You didn't go to this. And so I was a product of society. And I was thinking, how is it even possible that I could do these other things? But the fact that I was standing at like 19 years old on the shore of Chow Petty Beach in Bombay, now Mumbai, and the fact that I was standing there paid by the Minnesota Opera Company and the U.S. government as a young diplomat to improve the relations between the United States and India, the fact that I was living beyond my wildest dream, I believe it wasn't going to stop there. And I believe I was blessed enough to say that dreams can go even further. And um, and I started thinking, how can I make money? How can I make money? And every family in America still says, you know, what are the top two professions? Become a doctor <laughs> or a lawyer. And I said, you know what? I didn't know anything more than that. I said, I got to do it. I came back and researched how to become a doctor. I said, that's the number one. I said, let's figure out how to become a doctor. Too much school. Then, right. It was 12 years of school, the residency, and too much blood. I said, nope, okay. can't deal with the blood. Yeah. I literally researched how to be a doctor because that was the number one thing to make money. And then I said, okay, what's next? Lawyer. Let's research how to be a lawyer. There were no lawyers in my family. I didn't have a sense of any lawyers. And I said, three years of school, ding, 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 four times less than med, no blood. (laughs) And I started researching further and found out that presidents and, and people in Hollywood were lawyers. Deal makers were lawyers. People architecting, you know, new technology and things were lawyers. And I was like, oh, my God, this is it. I think I'll try. Uh, But I won't tell a soul because they may all think I'm absolutely out of my mind. (laughs) I have traveled around the world, the envy of everybody I know. You know, people still don't care about anything other than what country I've been to. And I'm not going to tell them I'm going to go to law school. (laughs) I'm going to be dead. So I did it all very, very secretly, very quietly. Um, And I think I put this in a book, but I, I, I actually implemented the plan during a production of Carnival that was a revival to go back to Broadway. And it was mounted at the East Haddam Goodspeed Opera House, the oldest wooden opera house in the country right now, still existing. And shows like Man of La Mancha, Annie, a number of great American musicals started there. We were mounting Carnival. I was rehearsing, performing, and secretly driving an hour south to New Haven and taking the Stanley Kaplan LSAT course while we were rehearsing and performing. The last week of the production, as we were closing the production, I secretly snuck over to Wellesley College right next door and took the LSAT test. <laughs> wow. <laughs> the show goes down. Wow. And um, I go back to New York and I just live the life. And one of my closest friends, my closest, closest friends are two buddies of mine who are all living together, watch me go through this whole thing. And then I said, okay, I did it. Now i got to apply for law schools. And I'll never forget, we were hanging out as buddies, living up there. I had my little Smith Corona word processor machine, completing law school applications. And I said, again, this is crazy. i got to apply for 12 from Cincinnati Law. Think of Cincinnati's got to take me to, you know, to Harvard Law. Somebody's got to take me. I applied to 12 schools, thinking no one would believe me. I wrote my essay about why I think I could do it, which was I am trying to apply the law to my profession. I'm not trying to leave my profession to become somehow some new person within the law. And uh, to my surprise, I got into nine of those schools. And uh, Georgetown was not one of them where I ultimately went. And Georgetown somehow got my scores. The admissions director wrote me and they said, you know, please consider coming to Georgetown. Now, truth be told, I'd actually thrown away Georgetown's application because it looked too good. It was too expensive. (laughs) I had to make choices. I was like, this is just too beautiful to even consider. And so I had my top tier, my middle tier, and Georgetown just didn't make it. And um, 
I'll never forget. My buddies was like, you know, look, go ahead and fill it out. What do you got to lose? I said, what I got to lose? Another admission fee. I can't right. afford this application. It's like $300, right. $400 for a struggling guy. in New York. In New York. And, um, and so the admissions guy said, you know what? If, if you can't even afford the admission, you know, for the application fee, just give us a reason. We will consider it, submit it with your application, and let us know why. And truth be told, I literally said, okay, what, are, what do I lose? There's another fishing line in the water. I completed the application. And on the on the admission or fee waiver, I literally wrote, I am surviving in New York, period, as my reason for not being able to afford another application fee and submitted it and said, who cares? I'm like, you know, off, go for it. God bless you. And I got an admission into Georgetown. One of 16 applicants that year, we were told, got admitted. So for every every person that made it, 16 people did not. And uh, it was unbelievable. That's incredible. Also, the moral of the story to me is also be honest. Just be yourself because you're like, what am I going to write? The truth is I'm surviving and you are barely surviving. You know, right. That was your reality. Well, there were a lot of other truths. I could have said I'm like a poor kid from Ohio. Right, I ain't got right, any right. money and I'm like broke. But I, Keep it know, short. <laughs> but, I, but yeah, it was brevity and I think yeah. it was clarity and I think it was yeah. some level of as you, you were probably right, it was some level of honesty yeah. that I just just cut to the chase um, because um, I did have all the stories. I was on my own. I had right. spent a ton of money. I was like dreaming beyond dreams. And I really, I think that line really embodied for me the truest reality of all. And I didn't even have to go back to, you know, struggling because struggling in New York, you, know, you can be yeah. a professional struggle in right, New York. Right, <laughs> of course. Most people, if yeah. you're not in the 1-1%. One, one yeah. And, and, then, and something else that you said, which I thought was really interesting when you were in New York and you were a struggling actor, was that, you know, most struggling actors in New York, they waiter, they work at a restaurant. And that was not in your plan. I was terrified. I was. I could not wait tables. I didn't want to wait tables for a lot of reasons. And I was determined, again, to survive by finding other means and believing, again, I just don't settle for what everybody must do. I find ways to do what I think I'm called to do. And, yes, I found another way. I was a, I was a weight trainer. <laughs> I love that. And a, and, a, and a calisthenics and aerobics instructor. But I loved what you said about being a black man and, <laughs> and the whole idea of waiting on someone felt inappropriate to you. It, it was hard. It was, you know, I never dealt with a lot of racial historical issues, but they were always there as yeah. a reality. And the idea of just kind of going in and being that server and being, you know, just thinking about the 50s. I did a lot of research about Paul Robeson. I did a lot of research about the 40s and 50s and looking at the opportunities that were just ripped away from people of color because of their skin. And I I had just a personal version to just like running around at these fancy swanky places surfing. (laughs) And I was like, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Well, that's also interesting that you bring that up because that's sort of a theme, I think, throughout your life. And even before this podcast, Belinda, um, who works with you, emailed me and said, Daryl likes to be prepared. What are we going to be talking about? (laughs) And I love that because you, you know— most of life is preparation, right? So, so, and so much of your success, clearly, like the themes throughout your life have been preparation. You're like, oh, let me do some research on Paul Robeson. And, the, you know, I mean, you, things don't happen. I mean, like you said, blessings, and I completely agree with that, but it's, there's also a high degree of preparation, of thoughtfulness and strategy that I think probably make you amazing at your job, but also have made you, you know, who you are. Yes. I think at this point in my life, I've learned a process, but at that early point in my life, yeah. I'm saying when you talk, when I say the blessing, I'm not saying the process because I got to still do the work. You have a lot of blessings. <laughs> you see a lot of blessed people that can't go nowhere. <laughs> I'm saying the blessing is just the ability to have a clarity of thought. Yes, and to act on that thought. Yeah. Now you got to do the work. That's actually and I've never been point. fearful to do the work, and I'm just yeah. like you know what? And I've never felt like I was the smartest. I never felt like I was the most you know successful. I never I didn't definitely come from a family that can afford to give me those kind of opportunities. So I said again, what's my differentiator? It's the time to get up and say you know what? If it's going to be required to do 100 pistols, I'm going to practice until I can do 100. Right? If it's going to require me to have a certain knowledge that I don't have, I'm going to figure it out and try to learn it, and ultimately I'll have that knowledge. But the the ability to believe that I can do it. The ability to believe that it's possible, to me, I felt was the blessing because so many people, white, black, indifferent, so many people are entrapped into fear and risk adverse that they don't act on the seeds that come to them. I, I completely agree. And I, and I think that also in a way can't be taught. I mean, you can read 500 self-help books, but if you don't have that 
respect for yourself and that innate sort of um, confidence, which obviously you do, I don't know that that can be taught. And I was just wondering. And therefore, I call it a blessing. Right. No, it's a really I, good I, cause, point. Because faith, it was the yeah. faith and, and, the, and the investment yeah. I made and just having a spiritual direction yeah. and believing that you can't articulate it perfectly in a book. And again, I didn't come from a, a, a wonderful, big, wonderful family. I came from a single household with a mom who was struggling to make things happen. So it was something that was more divine than just me being me that allowed me to act upon that seed of, of, of an idea. Did your mom freak out when you got into Georgetown Law School? We all freaked out. <laughs> I mean, I can't even I, imagine. We freaked out. My buddies freaked out. <laughs> right? Like the world freaked out. We just all freaked out. And even more freaked out when I walked down the aisle. And then we freaked out when I said, you know, I'm going to California, which at that time and still today was known as the hardest bar in the country. Oh, yeah. Right? And then we further freaked out when I— When you passed I, it. I, I, because, all right, because I'm so, I'm so paranoid. Talk about research again. Okay. When I went to look at California— most people just take the exam and hope they pass, right? I was like, again, what is the hurdle? I'm here. How tough it is? Why is it tough? What's going on? I wrote the bar and going, can I get a report? And you have you, have you ever done any kind of studies so about oh. passage? Can you send me a report? They sent me a report on passage. The report had categories of people, and it broke them down: in-state, out-of-state, school, woman, male, black, white, whatever. The report basically said a black male from an out-of-state school had less than a 20% chance of passing a California bar on the first time. Whoa. <laughs> right? So I, I asked for that. <laughs> yeah, going into so it. So I asked for that, and I looked at it, and I got the report. But for me, most people would have freaked out and said, you know what, here I come, District of Columbia. Here I come, New York City. Here I come, Ohio. But I said, okay, cool, that's the mountain. I don't mind the challenge. I just want to know how high the mountain is. Yeah. And I, what I got to do to get over that mountain. And I worked like Rocky Balboa. I read books over and over again. Oh I prepared like you wouldn't believe and prayed beyond prayers and passed the California bar on the first time. And Amazing. so we celebrated then because Hell I'm yes. like, can you imagine this singer dancer standing on the shores of <laughs> India four years earlier wow. sitting for the California bar and embarking upon a career that um, was never even in my DNA you know, for much of my life and, uh, and and walking across the tracks of life that many of us think about. What if I became this or what if I tried that? And what actually taking the steps to pursue that dream and turning that dream into a reality. Um, it was wild. It was so we celebrated like you wouldn't believe. They think I think, think I'm a, a monster. I'm, I'm insane. <laughs> well, you in a good way, though. So when you have clients now, I mean, I think you probably have the um, I know you have the ability to be selective about who you take on. I mean, and you're dealing with sort of the upper echelon of Hollywood. Um, will you drop a client who doesn't have who the like they might have been given those blessings but doesn't know how to turn it into action or not at all. And I'll tell you, I believe the overwhelming majority don't mm-hmm. know how to turn it into something. Hmm. The overwhelming majority are statistically falling into that three to five year cycle, ain't ready for my sixteenth minute of fame. I had an opportunity and I couldn't hold on to it. And when it was when I realized the overwhelming majority are floating out there not prepared for that future that I said, again, my differentiator could perhaps be a person, a different force in their life, a different inspiration for their mission, and someone to help them actually connect some dots that might allow them to be um, able to put together a sustainable body of work and a career. Yeah, that makes sense. However, all I'm thinking is that there's those other people, though, the noise of, you know, the best friend that's been around since childhood. The, like, And you got to deal with those people. I call him Cousin Pookie. <laughs> right, Cousin There's always a Cousin Pookie and in everyone's life. You can't. You have to accept <laughs> that he has access. Right. And he's not going away. He has access. And you have to accept <laughs> that unless the person themselves organically want to make a change, yeah. it doesn't happen. Right. And that's what I look at. And, and, and I tell you, statistically, that's why we overwhelming have, have overwhelmingly have people fail. Yeah. Right? You practice and run for the lottery. You play for 20 years. You hit for $200 million. They don't use all that. Con- they don't consume all that money by themselves. Oh, right, right. No, you're right. right? That's a really good point. You play ball. You do your yeah. thing. You make it all happen. You don't consume it all yourself. You yeah. usually, if you haven't, if you're first generation of wealth, and you have no idea of the first five phone calls to make when you get your first ten million dollars, 
you have a community of people who are helping you make bad decisions. Yeah, and they're and all knocking and, at and that and door. And it's really hard. So how do you can't penetrate it all the time? Mm-hmm. And and again, as a lawyer, it's not my job to come in and say, you know, you should be spending money, you should be getting a you know trust account, an IRA, and paying your taxes. I can't get into that for insurance purposes. But I can say, man, I really care about you. You know, lady, I really you know you are you have a powerful opportunity to take this beyond this opportunity. Hey, you know what I can tell you? Those who have succeeded way beyond have done things a little differently. You ought to think about, wouldn't you like to have five movies, not just one movie? Wouldn't you like to have one, you know, one record deal lead to a TV show? Wouldn't you like to have a point in your lifetime where it was sustainable enough where revenues were coming in passively mm-hmm. and you decide which project you want to do and what you don't? Well, let's think about, well, how do you get there? Mm-hmm. How do you get there? Yeah. And uh, so I try for many years to just make people challenge the thought of everybody saying, you know what, let's go down to the Bentley dealer. Yeah. Like, Who's your ice man? I love that <laughs> ice man. How much that cost? $100,000? Nothing. I just made $5 million. I'll take two of them. All right. Oh, my gosh. You know what? I got to get a G3. What's a G3? A Gulfstream 3 plane. <laughs> Absolutely. Because everybody's getting them. The biggest problem in Hollywood and the biggest problem in sports is keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah. Right. You start to make a million bucks. You ain't hanging with people making a million bucks. You're hanging with people making 10. Right. You start to make 10 million bucks. You ain't hanging with people making 10 million bucks. (laughs) You're hanging with the billionaires. And so you're always constantly trying to live up. Yeah. And not understanding even how they're doing it. But one thing is really true. They have more resources to do it than you. Right. So you can't change it because there are people who will always be in the ear. And the sad reality is, um, again, at some point, the organic smart ones realize I want more, or more importantly, they realize I don't know what I don't know. And they seek out people to be true advisors and invest in their careers and not just invest in the good times that everybody's enjoying today. So I have a question about, you know, since again, mostly we talk about unscripted here. Um, and, you know, in my job, I, I deal a lot with attorneys um, sort of on all the sides. And I'm curious just your thoughts about a few things. So I find that. There's a big problem that's been going on for a while now, and I'm sure hopefully you'll agree with me, which is that, you know, you get into a presentation deal, let's say, with a network, you know, where that's for the uninformed, that's like, you know, 15 to 50,000, depending on who the network is and what they want to do, because they don't want to give you money for a pilot, but they're basically asking for a pilot. But you have to do it. uh, You have to do your contract for series, right? Because they want to make sure they're locking in that talent so that if they love the presentation, they don't have to go back and now the talent has leverage or the production company has leverage. So essentially, and a lot of these times, most of these times, you're dealing with talent that's not Nene Leaks. That's somebody new on the scene who probably doesn't have a lot of money. So you're asking not just the production company, but this, you know, probably not rich talent to pony up a huge amount of money and lawyer fees for a project that may never see the light of day. Do you know what I'm talking about? A hundred percent. Or not really, because the first thing they'll say is, I'm not asking you to point up anything. What I'm asking you to do is sign the contract. And they're preying on mm-hmm. the absence of that ability to make money and the hunger to be on yes. TV yes. to basically say, I'll do whatever I got to do. And to take it even further, the thing that bothers me the most about the process mm-hmm. is that they're not even saying, even in the deal, I will pay you enough to cover your costs. Oh, yeah, right. What they're saying is, I'm going to pay you enough to subsidize production. And so, you know, for someone making $2,000 an episode and right. throwing $30,000 parties, they're covering production. Right. And so, yeah, I, I don't – it is not – it's an inherently unfair process. And it gets a little – it was cute and fun when it was kind of small and you can do it and a couple of people – but when it became an industry mm-hmm. and you see people throwing themselves and their lives and their family and their kids – in the middle of the television arena and the networks and others taking advantage of that and going, hey, we're not asking you to pay for that party, but throw a big party. Um, it's, it is hard sometimes because people don't realize the other side of the reality. Right. And the problem is, is that so few of those, there's so few of those people get the payoff on the other side. It is, that's the odds game, right? right. There's never, exactly. Nene, again, but again, NeNe Leaks didn't know she would be NeNe Leaks when she started this process. Right. She was just another person walking in. And I remember for a good three or four years, all the network would tell us is how Atlanta is like a secondary version of this. You know, this mm. is all about, you know, other installments of our franchise, which is our flagship. You know, you guys, you know, we don't get the ratings. We don't get the this. We don't get the that. And so, again, that franchise worked hard to become the number one installment of that franchise. It didn't start out that way. 
And many of the people, you know, had to rise with it and only became more successful as they, you know, finally broke through and became the most watched and the most talked about, you know, um, um, uh, group. So how do we shift the power back? How do we create is, – is there no choice to – but to? I mean, is there a fair system that could be in place so that talent doesn't get taken advantage of, production companies get some – Rights, like, is there a way to fix this? I think knowledge is power. That's the biggest, you know, talking yeah. point I can say. Knowledge is power because it's the lack of knowledge which creates a lot of that confusion, mm. right? And and playing on preying on assumptions, right? The 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 talent assumes that they're going to all of a sudden sign anything, get in there, become a star, and all of a sudden have all these rights that they don't have, <laughs> right? right? Yes, of course. <laughs> the networks assumes they're really not going to go out and spend all that money for the lawyer. They're going to just sign up because. They can and they want to be on TV more than they want to pay for the lawyer. Right. And I just feel like if people came to the table a little more knowledgeable about the full process, again, not just that deal, yeah. they would be a little more clear about how we're going to build this so everyone can be happy four, four cycles in. <laughs> and how often are you telling clients just to walk away from deals that just suck? Um, I don't I really make that a client decision. Yeah. I, I, I try. My job is to advise the client and to make sure they have a clarity of vision of the options. Okay. It's not to say pick it, take it, leave it. It's to say don't walk into that room and not understand what the decisions will be. And once I've given them the choices, they still more overwhelmingly will still say I want to try it. Yeah. My job is then to protect them as much as I can. But it's not to say you shouldn't do this. Right. Now, there are times where things are so on their face, outrageously <laughs> right. bad. I would say there's no universe where I recommend this. Right. <laughs> You're crazy. Right. But and even then, I've seen people go, you know what? I, I understand yeah. it. Thank you for much. Give me the knowledge. I, I swear do I sign. Yeah. And so um, really, lawyers are really, really trained. Our job is to give the advice, is to give the options, is to spot the issues, mm-hmm. is to help you understand the environment. It is not to make the decision. And I try to stay away a lot from the decision because, I, you know, ultimately I'm not the one on the contract. I'm not the one living for the consequence. I'm the one who at least made sure you didn't blindly walk into that door. And I feel good about that, you know, because I've seen people accept crazy circumstances and turn it into something. I've seen, as you said, more often they accept crazy circumstances and turn into exactly what I thought it would be. Yeah, yeah right. Exactly. <laughs> So I have a question. I kept thinking to myself, I'm, I'm figuring out your revenue streams now, <laughs> and I'm thinking, you would make a great studio head. You would make, you know, because someone like you with your sort of experience from beginning to now would be somebody that I could see, you know, running Warner Brothers or running Fox. I mean, is that kind of like, what's your, do you have sort of like an end game or are you loving what you're doing and you're going to? Write it out. It's interesting. I had that question. I've had that question a couple of times. What's my next step? What do I want to do? Yeah. Forever, my my initial response have been, I've been so excited about walking through new doors that I didn't even know existed. I kind of I know what I don't know, which is I don't know what that thing is. Yeah. Because, uh, and recently when I accepted the Entertainment Lawyer of the Year Award, uh, at the end of my speech, I said, after having conquered the world of arts and Having now become the entertainment lawyer of the year, yeah. I think it's only appropriate that I now start med school in the fall. <laughs> so, <laughs> too much blood. Uh, so too much blood. I don't really know, but you know, people have toured around with doing different things in the studio. I'm I'm just excited to continue on. There are things I want to do. I feel like I'm 25% finished and wow. I still I'm fueled, and that's another thing that keeps me happy. I'm fueled with the excitement and the possibilities of life. I deal with the realities of life every day, like all of us, but I'm fueled with how can I embrace and find that next cool, interesting thing. So what will I do? Who knows? I could, you know, yeah, I'd love to be interesting studio heads. I'm, I feel kind of sorry for studio heads and others <laughs> these days because so much of what the studio is, is not keeping again with the 21st century, right? right? If you've got a 20th century model that runs a certain way and requires yeah. a certain body, they're not spending time like Louis B. Mayer and Jack Warner yeah. and Walt Disney being creative and doing wonderful right. things. They're spending time going, oh my God, how do I retain revenue? You know, yeah, how do right. I show corporate balance sheet growth? How do I live with a dying industry? You so, know, and so it, yeah. it's, it's a very different creative process. So, are you looking toward digital then? I mean, the, the opportunities. Well, no, there? I don't think anybody cannot look right to digital and how it impacts all of us in every aspect of our life. I mean, the digital revolution, for practical purposes, is the first revolution that changed the paradigm of Hollywood, mm-hmm. right? Because everything else 
was kind of insulated, Hollywood was insulated from every other kind of recession, right? In a tough, tough, depressed time, people stayed at home and watched more free TV, right? right? And movies back in the day were good so point. cheap. You can go have a hot dog and yeah, everything for $10, and it was a great relief. That's how it became. You could buy a record and live the life of a royalty or talk mm-hmm. about a girlfriend or a boyfriend. You could do things through entertainment that was there in depressed times. And then in good times, money's flowing. I'm going to three movies. I'm going to watch this. I'm going to buy five records. Yeah. And so for many, many, many ups and downs, entertainment just enjoyed the fruits of a society who use it as an escape. And it's only been digital technology which has shifted us away from film, television, and music and into social media, into video games, into all of these other forms of entertainment which have taken away the paradigm monopoly yeah. That six or seven generations had to look at look to as its only form of escape. True, but you could also say that content is the common denominator, right? So that it's just a matter of looking delivery at it. platforms exactly. are the common don- oh, denominator. Yes, right. Because right, exactly. it was the it was the exclusivity of the feature film distribution mm-hmm. system, the exhibitors. Right. Who said, you know, but for the theater, you ain't having that experience. Yeah. It was the ABC, CBS, NBC, even prior to right. Fox right. that said, if you have a TV show, yeah. you can have that show idea all your life. But unless we give right. you a green light, no one in America is going to see it on a broadcast level. True. It was the record distributing company that says, you may be the best singer in America, but unless we put you out and promote you, mm-hmm. you won't be a star. Yeah. So that level of control over what became a star and who became a star and who what America consumed. And I love the well, the other example I use is how many times you heard a record the first time you go, that was a piece of crap. <laughs> then you hear it the 33rd time and you go, I kind of like that tune now. <laughs> <laughs> they actually made us like things yeah. that we perhaps organically didn't right. or you started finding you liked it because a couple of friends said it was cool. Right. Now, after the 33rd time you've heard it, that's kind of cool. Right, it seeped so, into you. But today you're like, if I don't like it. Yeah, turn it on. Get something we else. We can all go to, you know, we can go to a 30plex and all see a different movie, meet back in the lobby and all had a great time. We can talk about it. Yeah. Right? We can all basically. Or just say, text about it. You make your <laughs> compilation. I'll make my compilation. I'm never buying an album of yeah. 16 cuts right. of one artist again. Yeah. Right? Or you got to love this old time shifting things. Right? I love your television show and everybody else's television show. I'll watch them in the order I want to watch them and create my own programming. I'm never getting home at Tuesday night at 8 o'clock again. Do you, I don't even know when my shows air. Yeah. I, I mean, literally. And, and But that's the complete reverse of how, right. how the yeah. television was business built. was created. Yeah, they told us to be home at 6 o'clock after dinner to watch The Wonderful World of Disney. Right. They told us to be there Wednesday night at 10 to watch Dallas and, J- and find out who killed JR. They, they oh, God, you're bringing back good <laughs> memories now, Daryl. <laughs> but that was society. Yeah. That was yeah. America. That was Hollywood. Yeah. That was the way things were created. And that was the norm. And the digital revolution has flipped all of that on its head as consumers for the first time have basically said, you're not telling us what to do. We're telling you how we're consuming it. I'm going to watch everything on one night or I'll go where I can. I'm going to watch things three days later, seven days later, or I'm not going to watch them on your uh, your, your, uh, initial release. So the consumer shift through technology has allowed the delivery platforms to change. And the consumers now to tell Hollywood and others how they will consume their form of entertainment. Yeah. Totally different game. It is. It's it's wide open. And if you're still thinking about the old game, yeah. you've lost. Yeah, you've lost. If you're not prepared to understand that your audiences are not all wrapped around two or three portals, but they're now diversified, again, which is why you get back into multiple streams of revenue, <laughs> why not find your fans where they are yeah. and aggregate your revenues and still make the money you make. But if you're trying to get the TV network to pay you what they used to pay you, <laughs> right. they ain't got a hundred share. They yeah. don't have a hundred million people watching anymore. Right. Your number one shows have like 15 to 18 million people on a good day. On a great night. On a great, right? The, yeah. It's they don't have different... the, the motion picture box office revenues in theory have gone up and up and up and up and up. But that this, I don't think there's a single report that says the audiences have grown. Huh. They're charging smaller audiences right. more for, yeah. for the experience. Oh, that's interesting. And showing that the bottom yeah. line has increased. So from that point of view, the paradigm has shifted. And yeah. you've got to think, you know, and it helps you with negotiating. It helps you with right. understanding when things are rolling back or when people are holding lines. It helps you think. It's not personal. It helps you think changes Times have changed. Yeah. So if you were a million dollar actor and they're offering you Schedule F, you know, Schedule if you F. were, you know, yeah, you know, someone you got to get with the program. You've got to at least understand the program, right? That's and understand, find, yeah. right? And understand that if you don't sign up for that program, someone else will. 
And if you don't <laughs> understand the program and you think you're going to find a better program down the road, <laughs> right, right. you screw up. Not. <laughs> <laughs> you mean, like, you slash, up. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. So for people to just kind of operate on a cloud of ignorance and yeah. without knowledge understanding how things have changed, that's right. It goes back to, for me, knowledge is power. And when you talk about how can things happen with the production company, I just want people to be more informed, yeah. which means a better deal is likely to be formed. Okay. So now to our... Last three questions. What I think I know the answer based on a conversation, but maybe you'll surprise me. Yeah, bye. Uh, What is your proudest accomplishment? Wow, my proudest. As you've had many accomplishments. I was going to say right, right. I mean, he's by the way gotten every lawyer award. I I can't even list them all, but just best lawyer in the universe. No, my I tell you, my proudest accomplishment is the thing I think that still inspires me every day, and that is the ability to not be risk adverse, the adventurous nature of dreaming it and saying the fact that I was able to do something that even my mom didn't think I could do or I didn't think I could do or my buddies think I could do, you know, it's an amazing feeling. So it's not just like, you know, Entertainment Lawyer Year is great, but <laughs> I was a Corbett Award scholar. I was I got scholarships. I did all that stuff. And my wife reminds me all the time, who keeps all those awards? <laughs> But the compliment for me is something that I still use every day, which is that ability to say, I'm not giving up. Yeah. Um, there's a lot more that I haven't even begun to figure out. And I'm excited about still using those seeds and acting on those seeds. So my proudest accomplishment is to to do things that, that, that were not uh, predicted for me to do. I like that. Do you have any regrets? Regrets? Um, I don't even look. I, no, no. In the totality of things... There are bad things that have happened, things that, of course, you wish you would do over again. But the bad things that don't destroy you make you better, stronger, smarter, more savvy. And the bad things that don't happen, you're still going to get them in some form. And I'm, again, I'm a crazy eternal optimist and thinking the bad things and the things that I could say, oh, yeah, those are regrets, have just made me better. Right? And I'm learning also about how Many successful people have failed a lot. Yeah. You know, and I love this saying that talks about, you know, the difference between those who succeed and those who fail is that those who have succeeded have failed more often. Yeah. And so what a powerful Very. understanding. And so, yeah, regrets for me are those things that are ne- as necessary as successes. But, you know, they're like, they're, I wish I had always sang and continued singing. Absolutely not. I'm sing- I'm like performing vicariously through all of my clients and living from Angela Bassett to T.D. Jakes to Ludacris. I'm like, I'm having the best time of my life. I could be one career singing somewhere around the world yeah. or living vicariously through all the various people that I work with. Yeah. I am changing and the lives of many people. I'm working with many people who are just amazing and, and you have access to I saw your face, but you were at some incredible Mariah Carey VIP concert. I'm and like, I'm yeah, I mean, like you can do I, whatever you want, I, basically. And, and, I, and I've never had to want yeah. for things that I've never looked back. And I tell you this, I do live by saying I never want to say I wish I had done that. Yeah. And Good. I challenge more people to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, try, fail, but try. Yeah. Don't be afraid to fail. You might yeah. learn more about yourself than if you only succeeded. Absolutely agree. I couldn't couldn't agree more. So lastly, your top three favorite reality shows. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> my top three favorite reality shows. That's really hard. It could be of all time. It doesn't have to be that you're presently watching. And these are unscripted docu-follows? Could be or can any, they be, yeah, you know, anything. You know, Shark Tank or, I mean, whatever. You know, competition. Yeah, game it show. It could be game anything. show. Yeah, I, you know, I love... I would say game shows. Yeah, that's your thing. More than docu follows. Okay. Um, I like docu follows up to a point, but for me, I stopped being that interested in anything because I don't have the time to follow it as much. Yeah. Right. I love the element of wit and adventure. Um, um, I love the element of competition. So a lot, you know. So I don't. I don't think I have one. Yes, I like. You know, from. Uh, I love Fear Factor at one point. Yeah. Fear Factor was great. I'm having that, that producer the, on. Yes, that Fear Factor was just like a really cool, crazy, I can't believe it. I love those superhero ones where they have those obstacle courses yeah. and you're going, who would, like, who would jump on that yeah. thing and bang their head and like sign a waiver? You know, <laughs> I love a lot of those elements because it is really taking the average everyday person, even before the celebrity installment of it, and giving them an opportunity to kind of work 
to their highest degree. So I, I love the competition and I love the game show. But there's not one again. I'm I do so much of it. Right. It's hard to run home every day and go, I gotta watch this one. Right. And especially if right, like is Damon John one of your clients? Damon John, yeah. Shark Tank, absolutely. That's one I mean He's, my that's my top favorite. Is it okay good. Yeah, I, like, I, Beyond I, love that show. I love the show as well. I love it. It's great. I love Damon. I love the whole idea of what it represents and people coming in and making things happen. Oh, my yeah, God. It is. It's the perfect, to me, it's the perfect show because you're right. It taps into the American dream. The judges are just a brilliant compilation of different minds and diverse points of view. And it challenges people to think entrepreneurially, right? Yes. It's another piece of evidence mm-hmm. that it is not just enough to get a job. It's you got to be thinking about how to do a business. And it's helping people articulate visually yeah. what it looks like to create and get a business, fin- finance, and invest it. So a huge amount of props and, and excitement for that. But do I sit home every weekend and watch it? No. <laughs> do I? Yes. Because <laughs> yeah, I don't have time. The people You're know I work busy. like 22 hours out of the day. Exactly. <laughs> so. Well, this has been so interesting. I've I've learned a lot. I think our listeners will be excited to learn all this because it's just really good information and you've had an incredible story well thank you very much it's been a honor to be here and i'm just i'm flattered and excited you wanted this boring lawyer to come and talk with you boring lawyer (laughs) are you kidding you're gonna be running netflix in a few weeks watch out world um thanks again daryl thank you very much elisa thank you so much and good luck with the show it's great 